if anybody here watching the uh, watching the stream, uh, I went and saw earlier this uh, this year, right after I was told that I would maybe be giving this talk, and they asked me what topic I wanted to speak on. Disney released their movie Soul, which uh, for those of you who have not seen it, there won't be any spoilers. Um, but essentially, Disney's soul is about a person who dies, and their soul goes to the afterlife. Now, Disney's soul gives us a popular depiction of what it looks like, what people think it is to have an immortal soul. The, the movie has uh, little ghostly ectoplasmic uh, people running around in a different world after you die. They go toward the light, right? And these little ghosts are the real personality of people. They live inside your body, inside your head, and they're like pulling the strings, right? When I was a kid, I liked Ghostbusters, right? And there are the ghosts, right, flying around that they trap, right? They live inside of people's bodies. But in fact, this kind of depiction of a soul is a bit uh, different than some other kinds of classical meanings of the word soul that it's helpful to say a little bit about. So the word soul, anima in Latin, is just another name for what makes something to be living rather than dead or not living, right? So all this is supposed to mean, generally, soul is something is a living thing, and it's whatever makes them be alive. So like in Hebrew, it's something like breath, right, is the, the word for soul. But it's just supposed to pick out things that are alive, things that are breathing or alive in some other way. So plants have souls, dogs have souls. But however, none of these views, none of these classical meanings of the word soul have anything to do with the immortality of the soul. So nobody thought that Apple trees, when you when you uproot an apple tree and burn it up in the furnace, there's an apple tree soul that goes to heaven or hell, as the case may be, right? This is not what this term meant in the past. It only meant something about, right, whether or not there's a real difference between living and non-living things. So what I'm interested in for our purposes is not this general classical background of soul, but immortal souls. And this is somewhat closer to the popular depiction. It's going to be you, your personal self, something that has the ability to think, to choose, to experience something from a first personal perspective, something that survives the death of your body, something God could judge as responsible for your actions, that could pray for us like the saints do in heaven, and uh, right, that could be rewarded. So why might we think we have these? And what what is it to have one? And is it reasonable? So let me just say, I'm going to not argue that we do have these souls, these immortal souls. I'm not going to try to prove it to you. All I'm going to try to focus on here for my purposes is whether it's reasonable for us to believe we have them, whether it is reasonable for us to believe we can survive our death in the right sense, right? We're going we're gonna to clarify a little bit because it's sometimes thought that belief in an immortal human soul is just obviously contrary to scientific fact, specifically to something in physics 
or modern neuroscience. And I was just reading, there was a sort of popular podcaster who's a physicist back in January or February when I was writing this talk, Brian Cox. And he said something like this, in all the years of study of the brain, we haven't discovered any special force by which the, the soul could be interacting with our brain chemistry. And contemporary science seems to rule out appeal to any similar kind of entity that's interacting with our brains. And this kind of argument is very common. And at the very least, people worry about this. It seems to many people unreasonable to posit an immortal soul like that merely to fill in gaps where scientists may not have worked out a complete account of how our brain gives rise to our mind. So people will sometimes think that science really just shows that. And it would be unreasonable, even if there's some something we don't understand there scientifically, to posit the soul as in that gap. So I'm going to agree with much of what I just said in my what's going to follow. I'm going to agree that the state of the scientific facts basically rules out special physical forces interacting in our brains. But what I'm going to argue is there are certain classical understandings of the soul that this doesn't affect at all, because these classical understandings of the soul that I'm going to present to you don't have anything to do with special physical forces in the brain. And in fact, I don't think that they posit any special gap that isn't being scientifically explored or that we just don't have enough scientific data on. So as I said, I'm not going to prove we have immortal souls, but I'm going to argue that this perspective on the soul is not only compatible with our best science, but it's at least as reasonable to believe as it would be to be a reductive materialist about our mental life. In fact, I'm going to sort of conclude that it's more reasonable to believe in an immortal soul than it is to be a reductive materialist. So let's start off with some bad reasons for thinking we have immortal souls. So one bad reason is, uh, this is what a lot of people think. You want to believe that we have an immortal soul because you want to live forever or something like that. It's just wishful thinking. Well, I mean, I think the tradition has actual arguments for the existence of the soul. So in one sense, that I'm just going to concede is a bad argument. If, if it was just the case that I wanted to be immortal, that wouldn't license me to say I'm going to live forever. Second, we might think that there are things like near-death experiences or ghosts or parapsychology. And some people take these as being evidence that there's life after death. You know, there are these sort of very popular books in America among some evangelical Christians about people who die and go to heaven, little kids, and they see God and things and angels, and then they come back and people say, oh, well, this proves we have a soul and there's life after death. Well, I'm not, I don't think any of that is very convincing myself. So I don't, I don't think any of that is good evidence personally for the existence of life after death of the soul. I think a lot of it is kind of pseudoscientific, but even the best of it, even if we took it very seriously, these are cases of like near death, people on operating tables whose hearts stop. It's not, in my mind, very good evidence that there's life after death. The third is people tend to think that there's no reason to believe in the existence of the soul apart from faith. Now, I'm going to say, actually, to believe in the existence of an immortal soul just on the basis of faith in the Bible, 
in in Christianity. That's a fine reason to believe in the soul, to be honest. I think there's there's some bad question begging if you think that believing things on faith is always unreasonable. Um, but that's a different discussion. Now, on the on the positive side, from my point of view, it's just false that only Christians have believed in an immortal soul, or that it's just been faith. There have been long history of reflection on these uh, on these issues, and in fact, as I've uh, Thomas Joseph mentioned, I think lots of people in different cultures, including the Confucians, had concepts of an immortal soul. So it's not as if it's just Christians that believe this. Let's turn to the good arguments. So the good arguments for the for the non-existence of the soul, right? These are good arguments, as it were, against the existence of an immaterial, immortal soul are going to be like what I gave you earlier. The technical term in philosophy is that they're causal exclusion arguments. These are the sort of claims that I, I mentioned earlier where people think that the soul has to have a special physical force that's interacting with the brain. And a causal exclusion argument says there's no such physical force, so we don't have evidence of it. So we should rule out the existence of those entities, like souls, that would be interacting with our brains. We don't have any evidence for it. In this regard, what we're saying is the rational soul, the immortal soul, is something like an unnecessary hypothesis or even in contradiction with scientific evidence. The problem with these kinds of arguments, even though in one respect they're good arguments, is that they make assumptions about what it would be to have a soul that are, in my mind, nothing more than a pretty sophisticated adaptation of those popular ways of thinking about the soul from the Disney movie, right? That the soul is like a little agent, a little ghost that's somehow in my brain, right? And that's exercising causal agency by poking things or pulling strings in my brain, physically intervening in my brain cells at certain points to change the way electrical signals are sent or to change the chemical state of my brain cells. What I'm going to do is pretty simple. I'm just going to deny that's how the soul operates, that there's no reason we'd have to think that if there is a soul, an immortal human soul, it's got to be like that. And I think for that reason, what I'm going to present to you is going to be an account where no causal exclusion argument would apply that way to the classical account. So what follows, I'm just going to say, is an account of how you might think of the soul as immortal in a way that doesn't conflict with the scientific evidence. So let me just start out, though, with a bit of a, a qualification. So I already mentioned faith earlier. So I'm Catholic. Many of you might be Catholic. And it's Catholic doctrine that the soul survives our death. We all should know this, but what we should remember is our Catholic faith doesn't require any particular argument or account of how it does that. So this is what I said earlier. Even if everything I say here is wrong about how it does or how it's reasonable in this way to believe this account, it doesn't really matter in that sense because it's not Catholic doctrine. It wouldn't undermine our Catholic doctrine if what the account I'm going to present to you today is wrong. It would just mean it's wrong, and there must be a different way to think about the soul. But I think this account is a pretty good one, and a number of philosophers who do philosophy of mind these days do think this account is plausible. So the account I'm going to present to you 
is called hylomorphic, a hylomorphic theory of mind-body uh, relations. So hylomorphism is a technical term. It comes from Aristotle. Uh, hyle and morphe are uh, form and matter. Form is morphe. Hyle is matter. And it's a certain way of thinking not only about the relationship between our bodies and minds, but the relations in every material object. So for Aristotle, the world isn't just a set of particles, material atoms floating in space, but there are certain properties and natures that objects have. And sometimes when the basic material parts come together in the right way, they form a new object that's not just reducible to the particles, right? So this kind of way of thinking about matter goes all the way down. It's not just a special case for the body and mind relation. The idea is we, we're starting out with a different way to think about what the material world is. It's not just atoms floating in space. And in fact, I think this is quite plausible as a general metaphysic, a general approach to material objects. So I'm not going to defend that here, but we might think about it this way. There's a good difference between hydrogen floating in a vacuum, little hydrogen atoms, right, just by themselves, and in a molecular configuration. So when the hydrogen's floating in space, it has different properties, right? It's flammable, right? If I, I have an open flame around a lot of concentrated hydrogen gas, it explodes, right? It causes an ignition. And uh, if there's oxygen in the air, right, and you catalyze it, you create this reaction, you're going to get condensation. You're going to get water vapor from the reaction. But the hydrogen in the water molecule has totally different properties when it's bonded with the oxygen. It undergoes a different kind of change. And it's not the same thing it was when it was floating in the air. Now, I think this is the right way to think about material objects. We didn't just put the oxygen atoms and the hydrogen atoms really close together, right? They entered into a sort of bond, a relationship that changed the properties of both of them when they entered into that bond. Hylomorphism is like this. When we configure the atoms of my body into the thing they are, into a human being, it acquires new properties that are not just the properties of the atoms that I'm composed of. If you took me and squashed me in a big bag into a pile of atoms, it would be really different than a human being, right? The, the pile of atoms would be all the same atoms I'm built of, but the sort of thing that they'd be able to do would not be to think and to feel and to smell, right? Now, we could go more into that, but I think it's it's important to see there are certain assumptions that materialists are often making about everything being reducible to the atoms or to the smallest material parts that I think are sort of, if we can put it this way, a very loaded assumption that we should reject. Now, hylomorphism alone isn't the solution to mind-body problems, but it gets us in the right ballpark. So on this way of thinking about human beings, a hylomorphic approach, there aren't two agents or two substances in me. There's not my body and my soul or my body and my mind. A human being is just a certain kind of animal. Then we focus on certain kinds of capacities the human being has, the human animal has. Since a human being is a certain kind of organism, it's going to share 
functions or capacities with other kinds of organisms. Human beings eat, drink, and poop. And these kinds of activities require material organs. You can't poop kind of spiritually. The same goes for other bodily capacities like seeing, imagining, remembering. All of these are things that we clearly know are associated with our brains and not only with our brains, but with our whole nervous system, with um, circulatory systems. And we know that these things break down over time and they can be modified by medicine, drugs, and alcohol, right? I don't, I can literally change how I see by modifying the organ somewhat, by doing something to it. But on the classical perspective, when we consider some of our capacities, they're special. Some capacities of human beings, these capacities that are special are the capacities to think, to reason, and to make decisions that are based on those reasons. These capacities, the classical tradition claims, are not associated with any material organ in our body, even our brains. Even though these capacities to think and to reason operate using input from the material organs. So I think about what I sense or remember. And if I couldn't sense or remember anything, I couldn't reason about it, or it would be a bad quality, right? If, if I'm hallucinating, my thinking is going to be bad. Or if my brain is all messed up, my thinking is going to be bad. But that doesn't mean that my reasoning is the same as my capacity to remember or to sense. So for example, with smelling, right? I need blood flowing in my organ, my nose, for me to be able to smell. But my capacity to smell is not a capacity of my blood. It's a different capacity. So in the same way, my capacity to think and to reason is really a different capacity from my capacity to remember or to sense or to, to imagine, even if it uses that stuff as sort of inputs for whatever it's doing. Now, the classical approach is to say that these functions, thinking, reasoning, acting on reasons, occur in no material organ. And if these happen in no material organ, then whatever is doing the thinking is somehow something that is my form alone, is my soul alone, whatever is that making me to be a human being, the sort of configuration of my material parts. That sort of configuration, however, if it's able to do stuff like think and reason, that it uses material inputs from my senses, but it's not itself seated in my brain or in any particular material organ, then it looks like my form is able to do stuff apart from matter. My mind can do things that are apart from matter. And if it can, then it looks like if my body dies, my form, whatever is my configuration, would be able to go on doing stuff that doesn't require my body. And it doesn't depend on my body for its continued functioning. So this, this is the old hylomorphic account of mind-body relations for human beings, that there's a special kind of form for human beings, a rational soul, a principle of living thing that can engage in certain kinds of activities, namely thinking and reasoning and acting on reasons. And that that function, even though it depends on some kinds of stuff going on in my brain for it to have the right kind of input, it's not reducible to that. 
it can continue on even if my brain goes away. Now, I'm going to argue that this account is compatible with our best neuroscience and physics, and that this makes it reasonable for us to believe for a lot of reasons. So, as I noted right at the beginning, a lot of our arguments for the non-existence of the soul involve causal exclusion arguments, that there's no causal interaction between this immaterial thing, my soul, and my material body. But notice on this hylomorphic account, there's no causal interaction because there's only one thing doing the stuff, me. There's no me and my soul doing things. There's really just me, the animal. I'm not a brain. I'm not a pile of particles. I'm an animal of a particular species. And so where is my mind? My mind is right here. It's seated in what I am. And so on this sort of way of approaching things, there shouldn't be any kind of causal interaction. There's not going to be a special physical force going on. Um, it's going to be true that my mind is not identical to my brain. But in fact, in terms of neuroscience and the way contemporary people think about it, um, even good materialists are going to deny that your mind is identical to your brain. Because the mind is more, more akin to a process that's going on in my brain rather than being identical to my material parts. Because, for example, different sections in my brain process different kinds of information. And it very happens that there's a phenomenon we know called neuroplasticity. If you destroy or sometimes modify different parts of the brain, it's possible for those functions to be taken on by other parts of the brain, especially when, when the brain damage happens very young. And this is because none of the parts of the brain are necessarily, uh, the, the, the different parts of the brain that can take on different functions are not always specified to particular functions from the get-go. And in fact, uh, there's a lot of this that goes on for even higher brain functions. In fact, it seems like for the highest kinds of brain functions, the sorts that would be associated with thinking and reasoning, those aren't associated with any particular region of the brain. Because there are some famous philosophers of science, uh, philosophers of mind, I'm specifically thinking of Jerry Fodor, for people who want to look it up, tend to think these kind of higher functions are what we call distributed and non-domain specific functions. So these kinds of functions have been people who've done studies on them, try to argue they're holistic, global, and context dependent. And so they're not associated with any particular place in the brain, let alone even kind of the modules of the brain. And we can see why this is. So, for example, my decision making is not a process that would only occur in the parts of my brain associated with seeing, because decision making involves not just my seeing, right, seeing the, the black cat, right, uh, about to jump onto my face, right, the seeing I, I, I need to see the black cat that it's about to jump onto my face to make a decision to run away. But I also might need feeling, right, to make the decision. I need to have the, the fear it's going to jump on my face. I need to have reasoning. I need to see which way to run. I might need imagination to think about what it's going to do and maybe uh, kind of plot out where it's going to land. And I need my other senses, right, to be able to run away. I need balance and all these other kinds of things. And it seems like this ability to make decisions to reason about things is going to be systems level processes. 
they're not going to be processes associated with just particular systems or parts of my brain. So we have good reason to think that that makes sense. The classical picture that I've told you, this hylomorphic picture, gives an explanation of this fact. Because these kinds of high-level functions involve the formation and employment of reasons in inferences, in reasoning about the world. And even though they're systems-level processes, processes don't happen without capacities. It seems like you'd need a systems-level capacity in order to engage in reasoning and decision-making. It's not just going to be reducible to the capacity you had to, for example, remember or to imagine. And we need to ask in what that capacity is situated. And the classical account is going to say it's situated in no specific part of the brain. It's, it's situated in my soul. But I think we can see one way in which that's actually plausible. So imagine we have a futuristic situation where we have better uh, technology and we're able to replace parts of our brain with prosthetics, with cybernetics, with uh, computer chips. Um, this seems actually getting rather achievable in our own day. And I could replace a lot of my brain with prosthetics until all of my physical brain, or at least most of it, is entirely prosthetics, cybernetic computer chips. Nevertheless, we might think I'm still the same person because I still have the same kind of higher order thinking that's occurring in my, in my brain. And it's, you know, right, I'm able to recognize reasons and make decisions. And it seems like they're seated in the whole, in who, in everything about me, right? They're not just situated in one particular part of my brain, right? They're situated in my nervous system as a whole or the interactions between it. And so I think we can make it very plausible that these kinds of processes and functions are not associated with any material part of my brain, um, but they're associated with me as a kind of animal or a human being, like a process. So I think what we're going to see here is compatible with neuroscience. If we imagined what would be going on in our brain, what we'd be having in going on in our brain are not like reasons or the reasons themselves that I'm thinking about, or my thinking, what we'd have are sort of neural correlates of my thinking. So for example, what you'd have going on in your brain would be things like images that are serving functions for your, your reasoning. So for example, when you're thinking about a math problem, you might be going through certain kinds of images uh, in your brain as you're thinking about the relations between sides of triangles or how many sides there are on a given figure. But it would be similar to the idea, if I write, for example, I'm using a chalkboard to keep track of my thoughts and I'm writing down an equation on the chalkboard. When I erase the things on the chalkboard, I don't destroy the numbers, right? So the, we might think something is similar happening in our brain. We have these higher level processes that are using or taking as inputs the physical things going on in our brain. But it doesn't seem unreasonable to think when I destroy the inputs, it doesn't mean that the, uh, that the reasoning that used those as inputs is thereby also destroyed. So if this is true, right, we might just take this as a given. This is the account. This is what I'm trying to outline. I'm not trying to argue that it's true. I'm just saying what it would sort of entail. On this picture, my form, 
my soul, the sort of thing that informs the matter sitting in this chair, it has certain kinds of capacities proper to itself that are associated with no material organ, including my brain. And that can survive the death of my body. Now, there are a couple of things that on the classical account uh, would also be true. My soul, when I die, would not be able to exercise, to think without input. It would still need sense data in order to think. So when I'm dead, my body is dead and I'm dead, my soul would live on. It wouldn't be able to feel or remember or engage in thinking. In the movie Soul, this happens. They're getting slapped in the afterlife and they can't feel anything, right? Because you need sense organs to feel pain, right? So you can't do that if you don't have a brain. Now, the Christian tradition says when we go, this is normal, this is, this is what would happen, but God somehow fills in or helps uh, fill in in the afterlife what's going on with our, what would be in life with our sense organs. But the classical tradition generally thought when you die, you're in a bad state of affairs. Your soul alone is less than fully capable of doing what it should. So like in Greek mythology, it would be a shade in the underworld. And this is probably, right, this is, this is closer to what this kind of way of thinking about the soul would entail. But notice it also fits well, though, with the Christian doctrine of the resurrection. You wouldn't be completely you without your body. We could be happy with God, even as a shade in the afterlife, if we had the presence to God, but it would obviously be better if we were fully human. And also notice on this view, there's no such thing as reincarnation, because on this view, we're not a little person that lives in my head. My soul isn't a little person. I am my body. I'm not a kind of soul. And so on this view, it really is good for me to be reunited to my body because I'm really just a certain kind of animal. My soul living by itself would be like my capacity to think and to reason and to make decisions, but it wouldn't be everything that's me. I would be lacking a lot of parts that would be normal to me as a human being. So on this sort of view, I've sort of laid out the whole picture. This is just the picture. I'm just giving you some distinctions so that you understand where I'm going. What I'm going to turn to now is to tell you why I think it's reasonable to believe it. So what I'm going to give you here is what we call in philosophy a Moorean argument. It goes back to a philosophy by the name of G.E. Moore. And my kind of argument, it's a kind of way of arguing. My argument is going to be that our minds are not identical to our brains. I'm not going to try to conclude that materialism is false. But what I'm going to try to show you is that a reductive materialist account of mind is no less reasonable than the hylomorphic one I just painted. So a typical Morian argument, the kind of argument I'm going to give you, is basically to say something like this. We have better reason to accept a common sense view that's more obvious and clear to us than we do to accept a skeptical view. So for example, what I'm going to argue here is we have better reason to accept that we exist <laughs> and that we can act in certain ways on our reasons than to accept a reductive materialist account of me. Because the reductive materialist account of me would deny some obvious, clear things that are part of common sense. So what do I mean? 
So consider this. I'm a human being and I act on reasons. So let's contrast this. I've used this word thinking, reasoning, deciding on the basis of reasons. We might take a squirrel. A squirrel acts for reasons, or my, my parents' dogs here, right? They act for reasons. They run in certain directions because they see there's food or they want to play. And so they act for reasons, and we can figure out those reasons. But it's quite different to act on a reason, on the basis of some reasons that you, you understand, because you see that it's reasonable to do so. So, for example, when I decide I want to go get the car keys because I have some plan. I want to go drive down the street to get my, my phone at the store and then drive somewhere else, right? I have a whole series of plans and I'm engaging in means to end reasoning. So when I go pick up the keys off the counter, that's me acting on a reason and not just for a reason, because I'm acting consciously on a sort of reasoning process that I'm engaging in. But Consider that on the, the reductive materialist account of human beings, imagine it were true. So if I were a reductive materialist, all of me is nothing more than the cells in my body. And the material state of the cells in my brain apparently operate on purely deterministic laws. Let's just imagine that they do on this reductive materialist account then it would seem that all of my bodily actions, everything I'm doing right now, the words coming out of my mouth, are caused only by the material states of my brain, and my actions would be wholly determined by the material states of my brain cells operating according to the deterministic laws of, chemical, of chemistry or physics. But if our actions were wholly determined in this way, then my actions would not be caused by the reasons that I take myself to be acting upon. It seems like there'd be a great difference between me reaching for the keys because I have this plan in mind, because I have reasons for doing what I'm doing, versus just me acting in a certain way because the material states of my cells in my brain have so determined. But, in fact, I know that I act on reasons and not in this sort of deterministic way. And therefore, I know that my actions are not caused by material states of my brain. And on the same basis, whatever it is in virtue of which I act for reasons, my mind is not identical with the material states in my brain. So this is a, a very simple kind of argument. But the idea here is something like this. When you think of a skeptical kind of argument, for example, that we don't know that we're living in the matrix or something like that, you say, well, if you don't know you're not in the matrix right now, then how do you know you really have hands and you're not a, a brain in a vat? And you might conclude, well, then I don't know I really have hands. Or you could conclude the opposite. You could say, well, I know I have hands. Therefore, I know I'm not in the matrix, right? I have better reason to believe the thing that's obvious and common sense to me than I do to believe the argument is true that leads me to believe I don't know I'm in the matrix, right? I don't know whether or not I'm in the matrix. In the same way, I'm using this argument to say something similar. If reductive materialism is true, I don't act on reasons, but I know I act on reasons. Therefore, reductive materialism isn't true, and it's not reasonable to believe it's true.
Now, I take this kind of Morian argument that I've presented not to show that reductive materialism is strictly false, but really just to show one thing, that at least the materialist and the classical hylomorphic account of human beings, they're at least similarly reasonable, at least similarly reasonable. On one hand, some of the going theories that are materialist, there's a, a philosopher named Paul Churchland or functionalism, uh, uh, Paul Churchland's eliminative materialist view of human persons, but there are also kind of functionalist accounts in philosophy of mind. These are sort of technical terms, but they sort of reduce us to those brain cells. These kind of theories do explicitly deny that we're acting on reasons. So Paul Churchland, for example, who's probably the most reductive materialist out there, he would explicitly reduce or eliminate propositional attitudes or mental states. So you can't, the sort of thing that we, we say we're believing something or acting on something we believe, that's really an illusion. In neuroscience, there's no such thing. In the, in the real world, there's no real thing. That's sort of what he would say, being a reductive materialist. But to me, that skeptical possibility that I don't really act on reasons is less plausible than the sort of argument, uh, than the um, obvious fact that I do. And it means to me that something is wrong with the, the metaphysical theory that leads you that way. I have less reason to believe the complicated philosophical arguments and interpretation of the science that requires a lot of philosophical interpretation of assumptions. I have less reason to believe all that that denies I'm acting on reasons than the obvious fact that I am. I have much more reason to believe that I'm acting on reasons than that this philosophical skeptic got it right. So on the other hand, I want to say my view, the classical hylomorphic view, is appropriately materialist or naturalist in all the right ways. So it doesn't really conflict with modern science. It says human beings are essentially animals, even though some of our cognitive capacities are not seated in my brain. That doesn't entail that there's any kind of causal interaction of immaterial forces with my brain processes. Instead, the hylomorphic picture predicts things that seem to fit in with what we currently know in neuroscience. So we talked about non-systems uh, level processes in my brains. That seems to have confirmation in scientific study of the brain, the hylomorphic picture. Whereas it doesn't look like that there's any good reason to reject this theory, this hylomorphic theory, on the basis of contemporary neuroscience. Now, as I said, my view doesn't show materialism is false. All it shows us probably is that it's reasonable to believe we have an immaterial soul. Maybe that this hylomorphic theory is a good one, but at least there's one account, there's one kind of view of what it is to have an immortal soul that's at least as reasonable as these eliminative materialist accounts, or at least as reasonable, for example, as some kind of less reductive materialist account. Maybe there's, we don't have to go all the way down to this kind of Churchland eliminative materialism. Maybe if we think the human, human mind is a kind of process happening in the brain, well, that's closer to the hylomorphic view, but that makes the hylomorphic view look about as plausible. We'd have to ask why we, we think the materialist view is more plausible, but it looks like what we've got in the end is that it seems to me pretty reasonable to believe we have immortal souls. There's, at the very least, 
what we've got is the view that if reductive materialism were true, we'd have to deny some obvious things about us. And that seems pretty unreasonable or silly. So uh, in the end, I'm just going to conclude, it looks possible to continue to believe with reason that we have immaterial souls. Now, where have I ended? <laughs> I've ended with a pretty weak conclusion. It might look to some people, all things considered. All I've said is that it's possible to believe in an immortal soul reasonably in light of modern neuroscience and physics. But the kind of soul that I've given you doesn't tell us we're going to heaven or hell. I haven't said a whole lot about it. In fact, right, I even said pretty explicitly earlier, it sets up maybe a view for the resurrection because the soul surviving the death of my body is really just a set of capacities for engaging in thinking and decision making. But without my brain, it would be pretty helpless by itself. So it's not the end, right? This isn't this isn't the a proof that we're going to heaven when we die or anything. It's just a, a sort of argument that it, it would be reasonable to believe that that could happen. Now, the place I want to end, though, is by pointing out why this is still a good thing to end on this kind of note. It's because there's more to it than that. Even though I've ended with what I think is a an account compatible with neuroscience and physics, that's not the end of the story. As I said right at the beginning, if you want to believe we have an immortal soul on the basis of faith, that's perfectly reasonable too, because there's more to this than just what would be compatible with neuroscience or physics. We want to believe an account that is compatible with those things, but faith tells us more about our eternal destiny than we just know through philosophy. So this is from St. John Henry Cardinal Newman. He points out that there's a whole new set of possibilities that's opened up if we think it's reasonable to believe we have souls. He says in one of his sermons, we never in this life can fully understand what is meant by our living forever. But we can understand what is meant by this world's not living forever, by its dying never to rise again. And learning this, we learn that we know this world no service, no allegiance. This world has no claim over us and can do us no material good or harm. I want a man on the one hand to confess his immortality on his lips, and on the other to live as if he tried to understand his own words. And then he's in the way of salvation. He is in the way towards heaven, even though he has not yet fully emancipated himself from the fetters of this world. Indeed, none of us, of course, are entirely loosed from this world. We all use words in speaking of our duties higher and fuller than we really understand. No one entirely realizes what is meant by his having a soul. Even the best of men is but in a state of progress toward that simple truth, and the most weak and ignorant of those who seek after it cannot but be in progress. And therefore, no one need be alarmed at hearing that he has much to do before he arrives at a right view of his own condition in God's sight, at faith. For we all have much to do, and the great point is, are we willing to do it? I think Newman's point is helpful for us in the end to think about as I end this talk. What I've given you is a philosophical account of how we can have an immortal soul, and it fits in with philosophy, with neuroscience, with physics. It's reasonable to believe, but that's not the end of the story. There's more that comes open if we think we have souls. If we think there's a part of me that might live forever, that might be able to be happy with God forever or to be punished in hell forever. 
both of those things uh, forever is a long time. And if that's true, that we have immortal souls, we should think of what we should do about it. And as Newman says, we should also remember that the world is not going to live forever. The world around us cannot influence our soul except indirectly. Our souls in our own control and our eternal destinies in our own hands. So I think that's an important thing for us to think about if we think it's reasonable that we have souls. So thank you. Thank you, Father. Does anyone have any questions that they would like to ask? Okay, we have one question that has come through um, on YouTube that, that I can read. Um, it says, I have a couple of questions, actually. The first one is, in regards to the survivalist and corruptionist debate, does the intellect have an active existence? Unless we can have a kind of immaterial active existence, how can the human person survive? Yeah, so I'm afraid our questioner, this requires a little bit of uh, background for those who are not, who are playing the home game and not as, uh, not as uh, plugged into the Thomistic debates of interpretation, uh, interpreting Aquinas. So there's a big debate among interpreters of Aquinas uh, between two positions that are called survivalism and corruptionism. It has to do with how to interpret what it is when we survive our deaths. So on the account I've given, I, I've been very vague about that. I was talking about, so when we die, our soul lives on. So some people who are called survivalists think that means I live on, that me, the whole me lives on, just like if I had all my limbs cut off, it'd still be me. It'd be a little me, right? Reduced by cutting off all my limbs. It'd be like me living in an attenuated kind of sense. Or whether when I die and my soul lives on, I cease to exist. That's called the corruptionist view. Now, this is a debate among Thomists, and I'll just say, in one sense, I don't have a horse in that race. So um, I am, uh, on one hand, I have a paper that's under review where I try to propose what I'd call a third option that's neither of these views. So I don't think it's very helpful to try to think about things like immaterial acts of existence or not. I think we should be a little bit more uh, I, I think that would just be a consequence of whatever view you choose there. Uh, whether you're a survivalist or a corruptionist, you're going to have to think about your, your view a certain way. And as I said, I don't think that really interacts with what I've said too much. Um, so I, I, I don't know if I, uh, it might take us too far afield to really answer that question well. So I hope that helps. Yeah, we have a second one on YouTube from um, Mauricio Camisagna. Who says, thank you, Father Rooney, for the suburb lecture. I have a question. In this account, how could we explain the way in which neural or chemical disorders affect our intellectual abilities? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think there's a there's an interesting two different ways we can think about it. So the one way is traditional. So the traditional account is basically what I've given you, uh, one part of the traditional account. So our sense data our imagination, our memory, are things that happen in our noggins, in our brains. And when I drink, when I have chemical imbalances, when I take drugs, it's my brain that gets affected, right? My neurological system. And what I've said is my thinking and reasoning takes my sense data as input, right? So for example, if I'm 
right? Uh, it's like trying to, uh, <laughs> if I can put it this way, it's like trying to work out math problems when you're on the t when you're on a, a ship in a storm, right? You're flying around and you're nauseous and things. You can't think very straight. So I think that's pretty much one way you could think that the brain influences our thinking. It provides all the the precursors that we use as inputs on thinking. And so when I'm on alcohol and drugs, all that gets screwed up. So when I have brain disorders, that's what happens, right? I can't, for example, I think this is also true of some organic brain disorders. So I'm not an expert on this, but I'm just going to say this is my, my amateurish account. People who experience schizophrenia, right? It seems to me like what they have involves a certain kind of organic brain disorder where they have a problem distinguishing reality from fantasy and imagination. And we can imagine that there's a problem going on in their brain, right? Where this doesn't appear different to them, the things that are essentially dream states and the way you would experience real life, right? They can't distinguish them mentally because the brain is presenting them in exactly the same way. Now, in that situation, it is in fact the case when people go into therapy for schizophrenia, one of the things that I understand therapists do is they try to get people to reason through their delusions because you can pick out the delusions and the dream states because of things that don't make sense sometimes. But it takes a lot of effort for people to be able to engage in the higher order reasoning to pick out the states. It doesn't come for free as it does for, for people that don't have those organic disorders. We don't have to, I don't have to reason a whole lot because my dream states and my living waking experiences are very different appearing to me in my brain. So you might see how things are different um, that way, how the brain precursors to thinking affect how we think. I think that's a good example, but you can still use the higher order thinking. It just takes a lot of work to get around the sort of way um, the sense data is being presented to us. But this is the last thing. I'm not going to get into it, but I think disability is a different thing. So, of course, people that are the sort of term today is sometimes neuroatypical, right? People who are have Down syndrome or different other kinds of uh, congenital disorders with their, their brains and brain structure. I think this is a more complicated case because I think it has something to do, if I can put it this way, with, um, with them more globally. I'm not sure it's really just a case in that specific case uh, of those congenital brain disorders. I don't think that's just a problem with precursor or input. I think we can have a, a different uh, way of thinking about it because for with people who are uh, born a certain way, whose brain structure is a certain way. We remember on the hylomorphic theory, we are an animal structured a certain way. So it looks like that disability is part of who they are in a way that like schizophrenia perhaps really isn't. It's something that we could imagine we could really fix with drugs or therapy or something, right? So I just want to point out that difference, that, that that would be something we could think more about in a different context. But I think that's an interesting case. Okay. Um, well, we have uh, Father Hugh McKenzie um, uh, would like to, to ask you his question, actually. So he can okay. unmute himself and then go ahead and... Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you for your lovely talk. And I think you have, uh, you know, powerfully shown that the immortal soul is 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 more reasonable, more likely than reductive materialism. I'm I'm not quite sure you've shown that in terms of what you were calling, I think, the sort of causal exclusion approach, or or from some more holistic view of deterministic causation, which I think there are quite significant schools of of that who have rejected like you reductive materialism but still feel that uh, what you described as acting on a reason is basically a deterministic materialistic thing because there obviously you know there is a move back towards recognizing that things have natures and they act according to those natures and sometimes do very sophisticated things but whether it's a water molecule or or a plant yearning, you know, moving towards the sunshine, or an animal which is hungry, it, it, they, they do incredibly sophisticated things on the basis of that reason, which is written into their nature. So that I, I don't see that that argument would make it more lightly or more reasonable than there is that, that there is an immortal soul which survives the breakdown of the body mm. than these uh, ho holistic uh, philosophies of. Um, science so let me let me try to clarify the question a little bit if i can understand it correctly so if we're not um so we don't need to be reductive materialists in the sense of thinking everything is just particles but we might still think something like this this is the view you're trying to give that we might have rabbits or something not just the particles the rabbits are made of but that doesn't mean that the whole thing is not still operating according to deterministic laws, hmm. right? Yeah. And so in that case, it looks like acting on a reason, you can still be doing that and be determined yeah. in a certain way. Yeah, so let me just say, I'm not uh, presuming, so I, I understand, I think, this this criticism, but I would just make a distinction here. So what I was pointing out was not that determinism is false. So I'm not arguing determinism is true or false in this lecture, uh, because that's a different thing. Determinism being whether the initial state of the universe and the natural laws determine everything that happens after them, right? That everything has one unique future, right? That's not, uh, I, I don't care for my purposes here whether that's true or not. All I was pointing out was something like this. If you're a reductive materialist, then it's you you're never really acting on reasons yeah. so however uh, on the other side i think that you could say something like this if there are people <laughs> right we're not reductive materialists so you think there are really people here there's not just the particles that i'm composed of it could be true that i'm acting on reasons i'm making decisions that are responding to reasons in the world and determinism is true. I can't do anything other than what I'm doing. Well, that might be true in one sense, right? I mean, it could be true, but I don't think that undermines the immortality of the soul. So it would undermine our moral responsibility, or it might undermine uh, my ability to be punished, right? You might not want to punish me for things that are not in my control. But I'm not sure why it would undermine 
the fact that I'm uh, acting uh, that I'm that I uh, could have an immaterial immortal soul. So because of determinism and having an immortal soul or immaterial capacities are not really the same thing and they come apart. So you could think we're we have immaterial souls and we're determined. There have been some people in philosophical history that thought that Hindu philosophy, a lot of Hindus uh, in, in classical Indian philosophy seem to think things like that. Um, so I don't think that um, uh, acting on a nature alone is going to give you um, acting on a reason. So I think that's a different question, right? So acting for a reason, that's sort of what I said, like you might think squirrels and rabbits act for a reason. But a human being acting consciously on a reason seems like a different kind of thing. Now, I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to differentiate some of this, but I think there's there's a fast distinction between those two things. I don't know if that helps. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I would agree at the end of the day that there's a, a, a distinction, but I think we need other evidence. I think on your excellent presentation of hylomorphism, as you said, it goes all the way down through physics and upwards chemistry, biology, etc. But we know from modern science particularly that mm -hmm. when that breaks down the holistic, real, non-reductive functionality of something breaks down. And therefore, you would not expect that to be immortal. So it, it seems to me mm -hmm. from the evidence you, you, you've produced, you haven't uh, one way or another said it might be more, more, more likely to be immortal or, or less immortal. We need other evidence from, I think, the you know, behavior, for instance, of human beings going beyond limits or beyond their niche or whatever it is. You know, we, we need something else to explore. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree. I think there's I think there's good evidence that we act on reasons in ways that other animals don't. So I, I agree to that. I think that that's a, um, uh, as you said, I think that's, I'm just drawing the distinction. I wasn't trying to prove that it exists. So we could go through some of the evidence why human animals act in ways that are really different from other animals in terms of like language. It's important because otherwise the soul is not going to be more, more likely. And I think it is, you know, in slight tension with your beginning, I think this subject is a highly important one to show, you know, and it's within the tradition that we can prove it rationally. I know you, you absolutely support that for what, you know, but it is a highly important subject that we have evidence to show that it's more reasonable uh, that we have an immortal soul, which is free, of course, as well, and moral, uh, than the very prominent in our culture, in Western culture, and incredibly influential philosophies of science, which deny that. Hmm. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I hope that I hope that helped. But as you said, there's like six different issues there that yeah. it's hard to all deal with in one place.